Dave Rubin and this is the Rubin Report. As always, guys, click that little subscribe button on YouTube so you might just might see our videos. Now, joining me today is a New York Times best-selling author of Genius Foods and the author of the new book, The Genius Life, Max Lugavere. Welcome back to the Rubin Report. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. New York Times best-selling author. Yeah. Were you a New York Times best-selling author last time? I, I was not, no. Yeah, you no. were about to become. About to become. I didn't know it at the time. I had no idea how well Genius Foods would ultimately do, but um, I'm super grateful, humbled that it's reached. Big audience is now published in eight languages around the world. It's super cool. I was in Colombia, I was in Bogota, and I had like a line of Spanish-speaking fans lined up to get their book signed, and you know, we could barely communicate, but it was just so... <laughs> So gratifying to see that, you know. How does it change one's life to become a New York Times bestselling author? Um, you know, I think it's... I mean, uh, does it really, like, level up the amount of stuff that you suddenly get? Because people are like, oh, this guy actually does know what he's talking about. It's not just a book about food. Yeah, you know? yeah it's a credential. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very... Uh, I never misrepresent myself. I mean, I'm a, I write about health and science, but I do it not from... Uh, not with having a background in academia or medicine. I'm just... A, I'm, passionately curious and I it's a topic you know that I think is the most important topic there is uh, but the fact that the book continues to be it wasn't just sort of a there's this metaphor in in book sales you know when you when you launch a book it's like throwing up you could be throwing up either a feather or a brick and like a feather is what you want to happen because mm -hmm. the feather it goes up and then it kind of floats uh, the brick just ends up coming right down and the fact that genius foods has kind of just stayed up you know and it, and it continues to 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 sell well, to me, is a testament to the quality of the work, really, ultimately. And as a writer, that's the best form of flattery that you can that you can get. You know that that your writing is embraced and that it continues to do well. So yeah, I'm super thrilled. It's given me the opportunity to write um, this book, The Genius Life. I have since launched my own podcast, which is also called The Genius Life. So it's allowed me to get to do what I love to do full time. And and as you know, it's a great thing to be. You know, to work for yourself and to and to be um, driven on your own steam. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet thing, and you're building a studio in your apartment, which uh, I know a little something about that. So that we could do a separate show on that. But uh, for people that didn't see our first interview, we'll we'll link to it in this so they can jump back. Um, but one of the things I find most interesting about you, and you and I now go back like six, seven years. So before you wrote Genius Foods, um, your story on how you came to kind of care about this stuff is. Well, it's deeply personal, but it's also pretty fascinating, actually. Could you do like a quick recap on that? Absolutely, yeah. I started as a journalist. I was a generalist working for Al Gore's Current TV, which was not a, my role there was not as a, um, a, a flag bearer of his political you know, ideas and environmental ideas. I, was, I got the job right out of college, and I got to cover stories that were important to me, and they ranged from health to technology to um, politics occasionally. But when I left that job after six years, I started spending more and more time in New York City, which is where I'm from, around my mother, and I'm first-born child, very close to my mom. She started at the age of 58 to display the earliest symptoms of dementia. And she had a, a, a very strange confluence of symptoms. She had symptoms that were more indicative of a memory disorder, and then she had movement symptoms, which would indicate a, a more Parkinsonian complex, like Parkinson's disease. And it was something that um, was traumatic to, to witness. Uh, you know, when we got the, the initial diagnosis, 
Were you literally the first person that noticed anything, or was she noticing that something was going on? Um, she no. She was. She started to complain of brain fog, memory problems, but uh, we didn't have the vernacular in my family. We had no prior family history of any kind of neurodegenerative disease. And interestingly, my mom's mom, my maternal grandmother, um, was. She lived to ninety six, and she was cognitively sharp until the end. Wow. So she was. My my grandmother was not demented, and so the idea that my grandma's um, daughter. My mom could somehow be succumbing to this condition that I think most people assume to be an old person's disease. It just didn't compute. It didn't make any sense. Yeah. And so when my mom was initially prescribed those, the, you know, the drugs for Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, that was the first time in my life I'd ever had a panic attack. You know, I'm a pretty chill guy, but uh, it was I was alone in the hotel room in Cleveland, Ohio, googling the, the drug prescriptions, which, which I think anybody would do in in that position. And the severity of the situation really dawned on me at that moment. And from that point on, I decided to dedicate you know, all of my free time to investigating why this would have happened to my mom, what could be done to help her, what could be done to prevent it from happening to myself. And that began about eight years ago. And um, that was a struggle, obviously. You know, watching my mom descend and, and become more and more handicapped by the disease. And that's what motivated me to write uh, Genius Foods and to do all the work that I've, you know, that I, that I put out. Um, and what occurred after Genius Foods came out was, uh, I mean, equally surprising um, and equally heartbreaking. I was in the middle of writing this book when my mom turned yellow. And you could, I mean, usually if you turn yellow, uh, you know, it's either going to be jaundice mm -hmm. or you've eaten too much beta carotene. You've eaten too many carrots. Yeah. Um, but what happens uh, with jaundice, the whites of your eyes actually become yellow. That's kind of what distinguishes it from just, you know, eating, eating too many sweet potatoes. Mm -hmm. And my family rushed her to the emergency room. They did an MRI of her abdomen. And what they discovered was not a gallstone, which is typically what, you know, it'll cause a blockage in the bile duct, cause bilirubin, which is a pigment to back up into your blood. What they found was much worse. It was a tumor on the head of her pancreas, and uh, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And 90% of the time when pancreatic cancer is diagnosed, it's already yeah. progressed, and it was three months, and she was, you know, it was the most, it was barbaric and brutal, and, uh, and, and that's what she ultimately passed from. But the fact that my mom had these two freak health conditions, two of the most feared conditions mm -hmm. uh, known to humanity, um, it motivates me every day to to learn more, to teach more, and to just stay open and curious and always be willing to challenge my assumptions and my beliefs about what it means to be healthy in the 21st century. Yeah, well, that's why I think your story is so cool. I mean, just like you're, you're a good guy, but you've also like, even when I, you know, follow you on Instagram and you do a lot of like, you know, don't eat this, eat <laughs> this kind of stuff. And you, it's a very, it's very human. You're not like beating people over the head with all this, and I want to get to some of those uh, techniques and little tricks that you use to make things a little bit healthier. Um, but when, you're, when your mom got diagnosed and then subsequently when you did all of the things that you tried to do over the course of that time, um, was anyone else talking about food? Or was it all just like, this is what you take, this is what you take, we'll up it here, if this happens, you do this. Like, was there any like, eat more avocado? No, it was super frustrating. I went with my mom to the most storied cathedrals to Western medicine. And in every instance, I experienced what I've come to call diagnose and adios. And 
I have a lot of respect for medicine. In fact, when I started college, I wanted to be a doctor. I was pre-med for the first few years. But truly, in, in none of those doctor's offices was diet or lifestyle ever really brought up. And the contrast between what I was experiencing in the, in the clinician's offices with my mom and what I started to discover in the medical literature, there was just this big value in between the dearth of information and the, and the despair that I was seeing there with my mom and the optimism that I was reading about um, in, the, in the medical literature. And ultimately what I did was I realized that I had met, uh, media credentials and I started to reach out to scientists and researchers who were the authors of the papers that I was reading. And they echoed that, that sentiment of optimism. And yet at the point of care with my mom, what I experienced was, was anything but optimistic. So I really had to take it upon myself. And I think when you're a patient, my mom was scared, she was confused, she didn't have a framework for understanding health or science or anything like that. I did because I had, a, I had, had a lifelong passion for the topic, um, but, but really I think there are a lot of people in, in her shoes that are met with the same kind of, um, I don't know, like uh, hopelessness. And yeah, you're right, I mean what they, what, what every doctor would ultimately do would titrate up the dose of a medication that she was already on, throw something new into the mix, and by the time my mom passed, she was on 10 different pharmaceuticals. I'm not even being hyperbolic. And there's just no way that a physician can have you know, any idea of how each of those pills mm -hmm. are interacting with one another in a body that's growing increasingly frail and sick. And in fact, one of the medications that my mom was prescribed was actually a drug that's contraindicated for people with, with um, with cognitive decline, with dementia. It's a, a drug, uh, it was a drug in a category of drugs called anticholinergics, um, which affect the way the neurotransmitter acetylcholine operates, uh, which is involved in learning and memory. And in fact, when you have dementia, usually they'll, they'll, they'll prescribe a drug to boost levels of acetylcholine. And she was on this drug that uh, basically was negatively affecting the way that that drug works. And so, yeah, it was, it was a big problem. There was infighting in my family. None of the doctors uh, ever, I think, deprescribed. You know, so she was on all these drugs, and mm -hmm. you know, all did, she. Did you try to bring up to the doctors? Oh, maybe you know, I've seen this study. She should eat this, this, or we should move this out of her diet, or insert this, etc. Um, I tried. They doctors tend to be down on what they're not up on. I think that's part of the training, mm -hmm. but they are always uh, hyper skeptical of any anything you know more, you know, on the on the on the, on the more holistic side of things. And to be clear, you know, I didn't change my mom's diet and see, an, you know, a, a dramatic improvement in her cognition. I think that the science is really pointing towards prevention as the key way in which we're going to move the needle on this category of, of diseases. There are, there is hope coming out in the medical literature. Um, you know, really vigorous lifestyle interventions can, can I think, perhaps slow the, the progression of Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. Um, but for, you know, dietary change for anybody is difficult to do, let alone somebody with dementia. There are many paths to finding your family story. Whichever way you choose, tracing your family generations back with a family tree or uncovering your ethnicity with Ancestry DNA, it's easy to get started with Ancestry. It's fascinating to me how Ancestry DNA can reveal ethnic origins and provide historical details that bring family stories to life. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from, but can also pinpoint the specific regions within them, giving you insightful geographic detail about your history. 
Trace the paths of your recent ancestors and learn how and why your family moved from place to place around the world. No other DNA tests deliver such a unique interactive experience. It's easy to start making discoveries with Ancestry. For my listeners, grab an Ancestry DNA kit and start a free trial to amplify your discoveries. Start exploring your family story today. Head to my URL at Ancestry.com slash Ruben to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's Ancestry.com slash Ruben, Ancestry.com slash Ruben. And now back to the show. So, so for most of us then that, uh, that know that Alzheimer's and dementia, that these numbers seem to be increasing and increasing, and your mom, you said 59? She was 58 when 58 she first started. 58 years yeah. old, I mean, that's incredibly young. So let's talk about some of those things that you can do before, they, before you're sitting at the doctor's office and they're giving you the, the 10 medications. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that you need to realize is that dementia often begins in the brain decades before the first symptom. And I saw that nobody was talking about this. And that's why I decided to step up, you know? I, it, it didn't, the fact that I wasn't a, a medical doctor, to me, didn't seem like a barrier to entry because I, I genuinely believe that people should know how to care for their bodies and their brains. And we're just not taught this. Um, we're fed misinformation from every conceivable angle, whether it's the food industry and the way that they market their foods, uh, making health claims on their products, to the way that uh, the media um, reports on, on health studies and, and research and things like that. So I think, I mean, what I've learned is that you really, uh, that the, 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 the standard American diet is toxic, essentially. And anything that you can do to run in the opposite direction of that. So what is the standard American diet? If you're painting that picture, yeah. like what, what does that really look like? There are, I mean, there are images that you can, like you can go to Google Images and you can search for the average, uh, you know, shopping haul for your typical American family over the course of a week. And mm -hmm. essentially it's all processed foods, um, ultra processed foods to be, to be more clear. Today, 60% of the calories that we're consuming come from what are called ultra, ultra processed foods. Um, which are made in factories. They usually are the processed permutations of wheat, corn, and rice, maybe some soy. And they generally are what food scientists refer to as being hyperpalatable. So they, they're extremely calorie dense. They're not satiating. In fact, they actually can make you hunger, yeah. hu hungry later on. Um, they these, often put additives in there, right, that actually make you want more, right? Isn't that the Dorito effect or something? Well, I think it's the fact that, I mean, these foods are just, they're, they're, they become impossibly delicious when you combine sugar, fat, salt. Um, you know, these are, I mean, each of these flavors were relatively scarce in antiquity, and today they're just abundantly available. Mm -hmm. Like, sugar would be available to a hunter-gatherer, you know, once per year when it was summer and the fruit, you know, became ripe. Um, and even then, the, the fruits that would be available to one of our ancestors would be a fraction as sweet as they are today. Right, um, right. The amount of apples that you would have to eat to get the sugar levels that you can get in a bag of Sour Patch Kids or something. Yeah, is like the insane. ancestral apple yeah. is like a crab apple, essentially. Right. And today, right. you know, we have like these cosmic crisp apples that are amazing. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge uh, fan of, of apples, but they're bred to contain more starch and sugar than ever before in, in, in history. And they're also bred... A lot of our produce now is being bred to remove these bitter compounds, which are actually compounds that probably produce the greatest health benefit when we consume them, like polyphenols and flavonoids and things like that. Um, so sugar, fat we know is, is highly delectable. Uh, you know, I mean, it sends off um, our, our you know, brain's reward centers. Like, it's one of the reasons why we put half and half in our coffee. It just allows flavors to linger on the tongue. 
Um, and then salt. You know, the word salary derives from salt. It was, uh, it was something that was, it's super important. You know, we need it for good health. Um, sodium is a macro mineral. It's also one of these nutrients that's been demonized over the past couple of uh, decades. But you combine them all together, and it's basically like the 4th of July's, you know, fireworks in the yeah. brain. Yeah. And it makes it impossible to moderate our consumption of these foods. And so one of, the, one of the ideas that I put forth in The Genius Life, I try to really make dietary recommendations without further harming people's relationship with food. I think mm -hmm. people today have this fractured relationship with food. Yeah, and I always see when, I, when I'm at Trader Joe's, they have guilt-free uh, pita chips, and I'm always like, the fact that the world, the word <laughs> guilt is on there, yeah. like, if, like the idea that you'd be buying a regular pita chip and feel guilty about it is kind of crazy. Putting aside whether you want carbs or breads or right. whatever, but like the way it's all marketed, guilt, these are guilt-free. Right. Like, so you can walk out of here and you're not gonna feel guilty. Like, yeah. that's not the stuff you should feel guilty over. No, it's ridiculous. I mean, the, the truth is these foods are designed to be overconsumed. And without telling consumers how these foods are gonna um, you know, affect their behavior, when they try to moderate their consumption of these pita chips or the pint of ice cream and they end up feeling like moral failures because they, they just simply can't, mm -hmm. that I think is where the problem lies. On the other hand, if you actually are aware that these foods, um, you know, they're so easily overconsumed. consumed uh, then it, bec it becomes informed consent. You know, then you actually know what you're opting into and then there shouldn't be any guilt about that. You're just making, you're an adult making a decision, which you should be able to do. You should be able to eat whatever you want. But the problem is I think that most people don't know that these foods actually drive over consumption. There was a great study that was published and I, I wrote about what these hyperpalatable ultra-processed foods do to, to our behavior in Genius Foods, but since Genius Foods came out, there was a great study that was published. Um, it actually was funded by the National Institutes of Health and they found that when people were given um, all you can eat access to an ultra-processed diet, it's called ad libitum feeding, that people tend to over-consume about 500 additional calories uh, to reach the point of satiety. So to just eat until to a point of fullness, uh -huh. people tend to over-consume about 500 calories a day. And you're more inclined to do that by eating processed With foods, these ultra-processed foods, the way yeah. they're making you feel. Bagels, muffins, pizzas, burritos, chicken dishes, um, potato chips, sandwiches, mm -hmm. things like that. You know, the foods that are, that are primarily uh, packaged, shelf-stable, um, devoid of moisture, which actually can, can um, be satiating when food has water in it, but you know, water is, uh, it makes food spoil. It, it, like you have to remove the water to make a, a product shelf stable. So they're not satiating. They can often induce what's called biphasic hunger, so they can make you hungry later on. And yeah, 500 additional calories a day, that, uh, a day, that might not seem like a lot, but stretched out over the course of a week, that's a pound of fat gain. Mm -hmm. um, and then they, so it was a crossover study, and when they put these same people, when they gave them access to foods that were minimally processed, again, ad libitum feeding, they were able to eat until they were full, um, to the same degree of satiety, they actually under-consumed about 300 calories uh, a day. So what that's gonna do is lead to effortless weight loss. So that's really kind of like the switch that I think people need to, people need to be aware of that. Yeah. You know, we, t we tend to think that we have full agency when it comes to our meal choices, but we don't. I mean, we're, um, our actions are the end result of, of an interplay between hormones, neurotransmitters, which are ultimately influenced by the types of foods that we're eating. Do you think more than anything else, though, you're always, as someone that cares about this and you're trying to get people to change their habits, it's really always about fighting a marketing machine that is oddly yeah. ahead of you. So like if you just turn on television and every commercial you see for like a breakfast food, 
suddenly they try to make everything healthy, but you know, it's like an egg that you crack in this thing and then it's got all this other stuff already in there and it sort of seems healthy. You're kind of like, oh, I'm eating an egg in the morning and it kind of seems right. And then I'm sure that when you look at the instructions or the uh, ingredients on the back, it's like, yeah, the sodium and everything else. But, yeah. but you have to fight that constantly because they're marketing it all as healthy. Yeah, I mean, food marketing, it's, uh, you know, they, they put products at eye level, they market to children, you know, they get those, they've, they've forged those habits early in life. They become, you know, in, exponentially more difficult to break. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I'm human, so I eat processed foods too, right? Like, I'm, I'm just as guilty as anybody else. But I think to be aware I mean, knowledge is power at the end of the day, and to be able to act on that knowledge, I mean, that's the most empowering um, aspect of all of this because, you know, like, health is something that, healthcare is something that we, that we do when we're, like, pushing the shopping cart through the, you know, the aisles of the supermarket, or actually avoiding the aisles because that's where all the ultra-processed foods tend to, tend to be. And, you know, when we're debating with ourselves whether or not to get to the gym, um, that's really where healthcare happens. Mm -hmm. What I experienced with my mom was sick care and the relative lack of options once you actually have one of these like chronic diseases that has set in. And so at the end of the day, the food industry doesn't have your back. Um, I mean, the food industry is great in many... It's, it's, not, it's, it's an not, industry like anything else. It's an else. industry. It's not all bad. I mean, food, <laughs> yeah. is, food is safer. Right. You know, we're, we're exposed to fewer pathogens than ever before. Um, you know, f the hunger is less of an issue today than it is in the past if you're in the developed world, the developed world. But a lot of these conditions that we're seeing society now struggle with are lifestyle mediated. They're mediated by um, being, you know, overly sedentary by basing our diet around these ultra processed foods. And You know, um, it's funny, I'm noticing now at Whole Foods, just because we're in the midst of this odd thing with coronavirus, that nobody, at least at my Whole Foods, nobody's touching the grains that you can do yourself, you know, they've got the that like, wall in, yeah. of grains. It's like nobody's even going over there anymore, which is probably, I guess, good at the moment, but you know, who knows? Yeah, uh, a lot of people are now using these hand sanitizers. If you like go on Amazon, it's there, the, the markup has just shot up exponentially. Mm -hmm. um, but something that I think few people appreciate is that when you use a hand sanitizer before you go shopping and then you touch the store register receipt, these store register receipts are actually coded with bisphenol A which is a pretty potent endocrine disruptor, that hand sanitizer, when you use it just before or even just after you touch these receipts, it actually dramatically, by at least an order of magnitude, increases um, the permeability of your skin to these compounds. So you want to be, you, I don't know. Oh, that's incredible. They're literally yeah. selling hand sanitizer at the register. You probably, people are buying it right then and there. You put it on, you grab the receipt, and now, oh. Yeah, it's not good. Um, that's actually a big topic that I cover in, uh, in the new book is, um, endocrine disruption and environmental toxins without uh, trying to fear monger, but just to kind of alert people um, and to get people to think a little bit more critically about uh, the industrial chemicals to which they are routinely exposed. This episode of The Rubin Report comes to you with support from our friends over at Bravo Company Manufacturing. In the Second Amendment, the Founding Fathers guaranteed an individual the right to protect themselves. Owning a rifle is an awesome responsibility, and building rifles is no different. Started in a garage by a Marine veteran more than two decades ago, Bravo Company Manufacturing, or BCM for short, builds a professional-grade product which is built to combat standards. This is because BCM believes that the same level of protection should be provided to every American regardless if they're a private citizen or a professional. 
Bravo Company Manufacturing is not a sporting arms company. They design, engineer, and manufacture life-saving equipment. BCM assumes that when a rifle leaves their shop, it'll be used in a life-or-death situation by a responsible citizen, law enforcement officer, or a soldier overseas, so quality is of utmost value to them. Every component of a BCM rifle is hand-assembled and tested by Americans in Heartland, Wisconsin to a life-saving standard. BCM has always put people before products. They build their products because they feel it's their moral responsibility as Americans to provide tools that will not fail the end user when it's not just a paper target, but someone coming to do them harm. Because of this, BCM knows that making reliable, life-saving tools is only half the story. They also work with leading instructors of marksmanship from top levels of America's Special Operations Forces. To learn more about Bravo Company Manufacturing, head on over to bravocompanymfg.com, where you can discover more about their products, special offers, and upcoming news. That's bravocompanymfg.com. Need more convincing? Find out even more about BCM and the awesome people who make their products at youtube.com slash bravocompanyusa. And now back to the show. All right, so before we go fully there, yeah. I want to tell you what my basic diet is on a day like today, where I told you right before I we feel sat. Like we did this last time. We <laughs> did do this last yeah. time, and I think I was doing pretty good. But on a day like today, I'm having. I have a crazy day. I have. I told you I have two shoots. Then I have three other shows, and we're doing a live stream. Like I'm going to be just crazed all day long. So this morning, uh, all I've had so far today, it's about 10 a.m. right now. I had a cup of coffee. You know, I grind the beans myself. Do that. I put a scoop of collagen protein in there and a half teaspoon of lion's mane mushroom, which is nice. good for the brain, as they say. I've had that, uh, one cup, and I've had um, about a three quarters of a cup of oatmeal with a little almond milk and a tiny bit of uh, sugar-free syrup. And that's going to get me to lunch. How am I doing in the so, morning? It sounds pretty good. Wait, what pretty was the good? protein? Was there any? That you had just... So there's, it's just, it's collagen protein. Yeah. So it's like maybe 18 grams of protein in a yeah. scoop, something like that. Collagen is not. Uh... Yeah, talk to me about collagen. Yeah. This is LA. Everybody's obsessed with LA. collagen. You can't go anywhere with that. Well, I'm actually a fan of collagen. Collagen is one of the few, especially today, where we tend to eat, for the omnivores in the audience, we tend to eat mostly muscle meat, which is concentrated in an amino acid called methionine. It's an essential amino acid. But there is thinking that by consuming too much methionine without adequate glycine, which is an amino acid that is found predominantly in collagenous tissue and also in collagen protein, it's about one-third of, one of collagen protein is glycine, um, that that might be to our detriment. So for, especially for an omnivore, I think supplementing with collagen protein is actually a, a, a pretty good idea. Um, so, so I so coffee with a little collagen protein and, and some of the mushroom powder. I'm doing okay in the morning. Yeah, I'm a fan of of lion's mane as well. I use uh, you know the lion's mane powder. I think it's um, they've the studies on lion's mane. It it can potentially boost uh, nerve growth factor. And I've seen there was a clinical trial performed in Japan where it's been used to uh, they uh, they what they observed was a, a boost in cognitive function in patients with mild cognitive impairment. So. Um, you know, I'm a fan of these, uh, these like, quote-unquote, medicinal mushrooms. There's not a ton of research on them, but... Right. And then oatmeal, little sugar-free syrup, I'm doing okay? Yeah, oatmeal's okay. Almond milk. I mean, it's a little, for me, it's a little high glycemic to have first thing in the morning, mm -hmm. but uh, oatmeal, you know, it's a great source of soluble fiber. It's satiating. Um, you've got these beta-glucans in it, which are immunomodulatory. Um, so, yeah, I think oatmeal is... Uh, steel cut is generally the best. It's mm -hmm. going to have the lowest. They're but, steel cut. You can, yeah. confir you can confirm nice. when you walk out of here. Okay, so then I'll have two shows and then I'm going to have lunch. I, I think uh, they placed the order already. We're doing like sweet greens or tender greens. That's Getting cool. like a 
chipotle chicken salad. Yeah. A lot of romaine, there's probably a little cheese in there. I'm a big fan of the, yeah. I, I eat what's called a big fatty salad every day. I feel like I might have talked about this the last time I was here, but yeah, yeah. researchers at Rush University, actually one of the research, one of the, the, the lead author in a lot of the studies that I use, um, that I cite in in my in my books and my in, in in my talks, Martha Claire Morris. She just passed away of esophageal cancer. Um, she is the originator of the Mind Diet, and she also has done a lot of the epidemiology surrounding, um, you know, risk factors for cognitive decline. And what she found, what her team found, is that the consumption of a big salad every day, about mm -hmm. a cup and a third of dark leafy greens, is associated with brains that perform up to 11 years younger. Wow. So. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a strong healthy user bias there too. Um, people who eat more greens, more whole grains, things like that, tend to be more health conscious. But mm. uh, you know, we know that dark leafy greens are good for us. They contain carotenoids, which are really you know beneficial for eye health, for brain health. Also, so, you can eat a lot of spinach really quick because yeah. you can put a whole handful of it, and once it cooks down, it's like three bites, and you're good. Yeah, spinach. Yeah, I'm a fan of dark leafy greens. I mean, we live in this weird contentious time in, in nutrition where we've got these different factions like breaking off, we've got the vegans, we've got the carnivores. Um, and so I, I, you know, I actually have a pretty balanced message, I think. I, uh, I'm a strong advocate of the consumption of animal you know, foods, grass-fed beef, fatty fish, things like that. Um, but then also, yeah, dark leafy greens, kale, spinach, arugula. So speaking of the carnivores, you know, I was on tour with Jordan Peterson and he yeah. became famous or infamous for partaking in the carnivore diet, which I think his daughter Michaela has now, now called the lion diet. The lion diet. The lion diet, which is quite literally only beef. I yeah. mean, and I was on tour with this guy. He ate ribeyes for breakfast. We'd have, he'd often have two ribeyes for lunch and sometimes a whole tomahawk at night or maybe two more ribeyes, a little salt. He had some club soda, water, that's it. People kept asking me, this can't be true. And I was like, if he is secretly eating cookies in his hotel room, I don't know about it. But from what I know, uh, he was keeping to it. And, and I did see throughout the year that we were together on the road that he actually, his skin started looking better. He said it fixed some stuff related to like oral hygiene and that I thought his hair looked even like a little thicker or something. Wow. Um, do you, have you studied this at all? Do you sense uh, an imbalance there? We're not about him specifically, but just generally, like when, when people do these, what are seemingly sort of extreme versions yeah. of what you're talking about. Well, I think meat is is very nutrient dense. Um, you know, there's certain. I think people in the carnivore community, um, you know, there's some debate about whether or not they're getting adequate amounts of vitamin C or even optimal amounts of vitamin C. Um, which is found predominantly in, in you can get it in you can get small amounts of vitamin C in fresh liver raw fresh liver but you got to eat raw fresh liver to get it right. if you're a carnivore right um, by the way I should mention that in the midst of all this he took he had a physical for some insurance stuff and all his numbers he told me came back fine yeah so just yeah to no I think that meat is very healthy like I'm not you know I, I think that there's a lot of confusion about the value of meat in, in a healthful diet in an environmentally friendly diet um, or way of eating I should say. But uh, but yeah no I'm a big I'm a big advocate I think a lot of people the people that I see tend to do best on the carnivore diet because it's a it's a very extreme elimination diet is mm -hmm. essentially what it is and it's also a very satiate it's very hard to overconsume meat because protein is the most satiating macronutrient it's going to be more satiating than fat it's going to be more satiating than carbs so it's very difficult to overeat meat um, so a lot of people what you'll see is they're going to end up losing weight and when you lose weight. A lot of biomarkers that we associate with ill health tend to get fixed. Mm -hmm. You know, high blood. You know, if you have high blood pressure, it's going to go down when you lose weight. Um, inflammatory markers and things like that. So, just losing weight is going to help you if you if you are overweight. 
Um, but also people with, uh, with inflammatory conditions, with autoimmune conditions, what I've observed and in my conversations with uh, people who are advocates of the carnivore diet and also medical doctors who are advocates of the carnivore diet, um, that you're removing pr problematic compounds, you know, uh, plant-based compounds that can be allergenic for some people, that can induce, uh, you know, a form of molecular mimicry which can aggravate an already confused immune system and cause an autoimmune response in some people. So, um, that being said, do I think that people need to, that, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very difficult diet to adhere to, and if I were suffering from some kind of autoimmune condition, I would probably give it a shot, mm -hmm. but then I would try to reintegrate, I mean, elimination diets are not meant to be, um, you know, adhered to long term. You're supposed to, like, cut everything out and then reintegrate one by one, um, you know, these different food groups so that you can see what the actual source of your problems is. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've never tried it personally. Hey everybody, big news. Wanna let you know that the Don't Burn This Book Tour kicks off on April 28th, which happens to be the same day that the book is released. We've got 17 stops to start right here in the good old US of A. Tuesday, April 28th, we're at the Gramercy Theater in New York. Wednesday, April 29th, we're at the Theater of the Living Arts in P Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. On April 30th, we're at the Fillmore in D.C. Sunday, May 3rd, we're at the House of Blues in Dallas. Monday, May 4th, at the House of Blues in Houston. Tuesday, May 5th, at the Aztec Theater in San Antonio. Thursday, May 7th, we're at Cincinnati, Ohio's Bogarts Theater. On May 8th, Friday, May 8th, we're at the House of Blues in Cleveland. May 9th, we're at Old National Center in Indianapolis. May 10th, we're at the Varsity Theater in Minneapolis. May 11th, we're at 20 Monroe Live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. May 12th, we're at the St. Andrews Hall in Detroit. May 15th, we're at the Summit in Denver. May 18th, we're at the House of Blues in Anaheim, California. May 19th, we're at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, California. May 20th, we're at the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington. May 21st, we're at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. We're adding more stops right now. Those are the original 17. Tickets are now available, and, uh, and I hope to meet you guys. We're gonna do meet and greets. There'll be a VIP section, gonna shake hands, sign books, all kinds of stuff. Most of the theaters are about 1,000 seats, so it's nice and big, but also intimate and not crazy. And uh, I can't wait to see you guys out there. So go to DaveRubin.com slash events, and I hope to see you guys out on the road. Can we talk about the anti-inflammatory thing for a little bit? So I don't remember, last time I had you on, which I think maybe is like a year and a half ago or so, um, I don't even know if I had talked about it publicly yet, but a, a couple years back, about five years ago, I was getting my hair cut, and my girl, she told me that I was missing some chunks of hair. And then it started spreading basically all over my head. And at one point I had lost literally like 40% of my hair. Wow. And I was doing like crazy, have, have I told you about this? I even you even privately I maybe? It. I don't even remember if it was private or on the show. But in any event, I was doing like crazy spray-on stuff to be on camera and all this other stuff. And I was doing steroids and then I went on some experimental stuff and, and I had a really horrible reaction to that. The one thing that started turning it around for me was when I started doing more of a paleo diet, which I'm still doing not fully, I'm doing more of like a slow carb thing, but really just to, to do the anti-inflammatory thing. And I've seen a change. I mean, I've lost weight, I feel better, even little things, old basketball injuries that don't hurt as much. Yeah. Um, can you just talk about the inflammatory situation? Yeah. And why so, you mean, don't want to be inflamed all the time? Yeah, so I mean, I liken chronic low-grade inflammation to a forest fire occurring in the body. And 
I mean, my focus, the brain, sits directly downwind of that fire, unfortunately. And in inflammation is not a bad thing. Like, you know, it's a, it's a life-saving function of our immune systems. And it's really designed by nature to spot clean cuts, wounds, scrapes, bruises. Um, and you can feel it if you've ever sprained an ankle. The area gets, you know, it gets hot. It starts swelling, it, you know, um, will engorge with blood. And uh, the same thing happens when you, um, you know, if you have an infection, like in, you know, in your body, you become inflamed. And the problem today, I think, is that uh, our immune systems are responding not to what they would have, you know, for our ancestors, but they're responding more to our diets and our lifestyles. Um, Meaning in the old days, it would respond because you were wounded, because you, you stepped wounded. on something or you got bit by an animal yeah, or something it, like that. It and now the, it's just the constant intake yeah, of crap, yeah. basically. It's, a, it's essentially there as a defense mechanism, but unfortunately today it's sort of, you know, it's overactive as a response to pro-inflammatory diets, um, you know, being overly sedentary, chronic stress, chronic stress is inflammatory. Um, so, I mean, there's this whole milieu that our immune systems now have to sort of contend with. Uh, and it's a problem because inflammation, it's not like a free ride, you know, there's collateral damage that occurs when, um, when the body essentially is there, is like, is putting out a fire essentially. And when that's occurring all over the body, uh, it creates this collateral damage, it can damage you know, brain tissue, um, it could negative, negatively affect your immune system, leave you prone to infection. Um, so I think for a lot of people, I mean, we're seeing epidemic rates of obesity and metabolic syndrome. Today, about 12% of people are in what researchers would call good metabolic health. Um, and so- Man, that is a depressingly low number. Super depressing, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, today, the, I mean, a lot of people are struggling with chronic low-grade inflammation, and that really is the cornerstone, it seems, to uh, a lot of these kinds of lifestyle-mediated con conditions that we're seeing skyrocket. Right. And inflammation, it can, you know, it's the, the role that it plays in the onset of these conditions is still being explored, but it can exacerbate problems. Um, I mean... The role that inflammation plays in, in mental health and behavior uh, and risk for neurodegenerative disease is really kind of like my, my focus, but inflammation can also damage your DNA, um, which is at the root cause of you know, cancer, maybe even aging itself. Um, but when an animal is inflamed, animals display what are called sickness behaviors. They retract from the herd, they lose interest in grooming and food and sex. So I mean, inflammation, which is a biochemical process in the body, can actually have an effect on the way that we think and the way that we feel. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, we just lost our 16-year-old dog, Emma, and in the last year, she had bladder cancer, and they told us two weeks to five months, and really all we did was change her diet. We changed her diet from, you know, the usual processed dog food. You know, she was eating something pretty decent, but it was dog food, and we changed it into human food. She was eating organic chicken and sweet potato mostly, and then at the end she was eating ribeyes and all, oh, all she had a great last week. Like, the girl I saw was just, that. Yeah, the girl was doing all right. Um, but that was further evidence, I know it's a, it's a dog, not a human, of just what, what a diet change will do, because I had the doctor who literally wanted us to do chemo on her and go in for surgeries and all that for a 15-year-old dog at the time, uh, and I was just like, I'm not, we're not doing that. And what we did was just a diet change. And not only, I mean, our, our vet then started telling us, well, not only because you've changed her diet and gotten her off some of those foods, is that just in, in and of itself good, 
but now she's lost some weight, so her arthritis is better, and, and a series of other things. So it's like there are these just obvious things yeah. that I guess we just don't think about that yeah. often. Yeah, I mean, the, food, the role that food plays in helping us to prevent these kinds of conditions, I think, is profound. I don't think that food can cure everything. Um, it certainly didn't cure my mom, and uh, but that being said, neither did Western medicine. Yeah. You know, like my mom uh, was not really offered anything that actually helped her, either for her dementia or for her cancer. Um, but I think that that's why I'm so passionate about this like idea of prevention and um, and doing what you can while you're healthy. I, there, one of my favorite quotes, John F. Kennedy, you know, the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining, and. Uh, Dementia, Alzheimer's disease, even Parkinson's disease, by the time you show your first symptom of Parkinson's disease, half of the dopaminergic neurons involved in movement in the region of the brain associated with the condition are already dead. So cancer, heart disease, none of these conditions develop overnight. Hey, Ruben Report podcast listeners, just a quick reminder that my first book, Don't Burn This Book, Free Thinking in an Age of Unreason, is now available for pre-order. In it, I show you guys how to navigate a world of outrage mobs, political polarization, and online censorship without totally losing your mind. Pre-order your copy now on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or go to don'tburnthisbook.com and order yours today. So I want to come back to that. So let's pin that for just a sec, but let's get through my, my daily diet. So yeah, okay. get that out of the way. So then, then I have a bunch of shows this afternoon. Then tonight, we have the, the whole crew's here working late. So I think we're bringing in from this Israeli Mediterranean place. I'm going to do some, some shawarma, some salads, blah, blah, blah. Love that. I know you're good with that. Now here, talk to me about the, the pita and the, and the fries. The pita I, and I'm the fries? I'm going to try to avoid it. I'm going to try to, I usually try to avoid it. Um, yeah, I, I think... So I know you're happy if I just do the chicken and the salads and all that stuff, we're good. It's the, French fries are the, uh, it's the number one vegetable. Like, potatoes are the number one vegetable consumed in this, in this nation, and, and usually they're in the form of French fries and potato chips. Um, I'm not a, I mean, here, I'll eat them occasionally as well, but it's very hard for me to moderate my consumption of, of, of French fries. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's very You think it's difficult. particularly hard for you now? Because it's also like you're doing something like so counter to everything else you believe in. It's like, ah, I'm doing and it. And so I just end up So binging. you just like go yeah. crazy, yeah. Um, no, I, I've always I've always struggled and I, I realized from a very young age that the way for me to, to control my health and to like moderate my consumption of those foods is to not try them. Because I think once, once, I, once I open up those floodgates, mm -hmm. it's like, they're like trigger foods, yeah. you know, they're triggers. We live in a world where everybody's being triggered. I think a lot of people are triggered by foods and then they end up um, over consuming them. And so once, you know, if I'm able to kind of not break the seal on mm -hmm. those foods, it becomes very, uh, you know, it's, it's just so much more effortless for me to, to manage my health. If I were to give in to every craving, um, I feel like I would, you know, I mean, I don't know, but I would probably. Well, you'd definitely be in a different line of work. Yeah. I know, I know that much. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, French fries, you know, I mean, potatoes can be, you know, by themselves can be a nutrient-dense food, but the minute you throw them in, in the oil and you throw salt on them, I mean, the problem, another major problem is that um, fried foods, usually when you, when you get fried foods in a restaurant, they're made, they're being fried in oil that's just been sitting out all day. And these oils are toxic. Mm -hmm. I mean, the production process alone creates uh, a small but meaningful amount of trans fats, which are, there's no safe level of man-made tra trans fat consumption. Um, they're, you know, they inflame your arteries, they're associated with uh, increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, for worse brain function, even if you're young and healthy, heart disease, cancer, things like that. 
Um, they're aggressively pro-inflammatory. And then the heating and the, the, just the constant heating and reheating of these oils creates other dangerous compounds like aldehydes, um, which we know are damaging to, to, you know, to our brain cells. Um, so, I mean, if you can just cut out like fried foods or at least dramatically minimize your consumption of these foods, uh, super, super important stuff. So speaking of oils, I know I asked you this last time, but it's a year and a half, things change. You're cooking with oil. Yeah. What oil are you going to? What is the go-to oil? Everyone talks about smoke point and when it becomes acidic and all this other stuff. Talk I think, me. I think. I mean, it's a myth that you can't cook with extra virgin olive oil. Um, you know, generally you want to use it for low to medium temperatures. Uh, at, for higher heat cooking, I'll use avocado oil mm -hmm. or even like a more saturated fat like butter or ghee. Because mm -hmm. the more saturated a fat is, the more, the more stability it's going to have at higher temperatures. And what you really don't want to do is damage the oil because da damaged oil damages you. And that's one of the problems with eating fried foods and with eating processed foods that are made with these oils um, and even buying the oils and having them sit in a plastic tub in your warm kitchen for months on end. Mm -hmm. It damages the oils and these cooking oils that we've been told for decades are good for us like canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil. They're the most damage prone of these oils. So you're cooking a steak, you're searing a steak, you're doing it in butter. Yeah. Butter or ghee. Butter or ghee, yeah, yeah. generally. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. All right, so my diet sounds sounds pretty... It sounds pretty good. Pretty decent. But the thing is... And not to say I don't deviate from that, because yeah. I, I, you know, maybe once every two weeks I'll have some pizza and I'll do That's in great. and out every now and again, although I'm trying to do the lettuce wraps instead of That's the... That's cool, yeah. 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 Here's the thing. I, I mean, I think... I don't actually like to use the term cheat meal. I think, yeah. uh, you know, the way that I've seen it described that I think is a way more empowering and it's a way healthier way to look at these, uh, you know, when you choose to have the pizza, which we all know pizza's delicious, right? We, if, if we consider them planned indulgences, mm -hmm. where you know that you're gonna loosen the belt and you're just gonna like go all in, I think that offers tremendous value for our psyches, um, you know, and it's part of the human experience, being able to indulge when we, when we choose to. And mm -hmm. that can also help us adhere to whatever diet plan we choose to be on. Because, yeah. I mean, the number one um, predictor of success is, is adherence to, to a diet. I mean, you can go to a, as, I mean, as the author of health books, I'll tell you, you can go to a, a bookstore and you can pick up any health book off the shelf, and as long as you adhere to it, it's probably gonna do good things for your health. You just have to find the one that's gonna be the most sustainable for you. Yeah, have you ever done any research, or I'm sure there's research on this, on just geographically, like looking at the United States alone, how people eat so differently depending on where they are. So like when I go back to New York where you're from New York City and I most of my life was spent in New York City, it's so focused on pizza and bagels there that when I go, it's like, I'm always like, yeah, I'll have one bagel, I'll have one slice of pizza. But then like you do it once and then it, it's sort of what you're talking about. It's like you start losing control because it's everywhere all the time versus out here in California where it's like you often can't even find a piece of bread or they'll, they'll shoot you. I think, yeah. I think they just passed the law. They're allowed to shoot you if they see eating bread on the street. <laughs> uh, but just geographically and how the middle America obviously is so different from that and yeah. everything else. Yeah, I mean, their food deserts definitely exist. Um, access, I think, is still an issue for many people. And I mean, the, 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 the mere, like food proximity is a, is a predictor to our consumption of that food. I mean, just being close to food and having food you know, always available is a major reason why I think so many people are, are overweight these days. I mean, I was reading coverage of a study that came out in the New York Times that, um, that estimated that by the year 2030, one in two adults in the US are gonna be obese. Not just overweight, but mm -hmm. obese. And one in four are gonna be uh, severely obese. Man, we're going to Wally. Yeah. Remember the Disney, or the Pixar movie Wally? We're yeah. heading there. Yeah. yeah, we are, we totally are. 
And it's be half Wally, half idiocracy. That's pretty much <laughs> yeah, where we're going. That's exactly. That's exactly. Yeah. It's so unfortunate. Um, but yeah, I, th I think the the proximity, the you know, the just the ever present uh, proximity that we have to these ultra processed foods, begging us like at every moment of the day to to not just eat but overeat. Yeah. Um, I think it's a big problem. All right, so if we want to live the genius life, we've obviously spent most of this time talking about food, but one of the other things you talk about in this book is something that I care a lot about and I'm writing about and I talk about constantly, sort of the digital version of why you might need a detox every now and again or how to control the amount of information we're slammed with or the rest of it, which I always find for people in our positions is a particularly odd thing to talk about because yeah. we're on YouTube, we're doing podcasts, you have to be on Instagram to promote your stuff, you're on Twitter, blah, 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 and yet that actually can affect your health and well-being and, and everything else. Yeah, in a big way. Um, and I, I really value what you do. Every August you yeah, take every off? Every yeah, every August. Yeah, it's awesome. No nothing. No, no nothing. news. No t you know how hard it is to just avoid news, I mean, put, forget phone, I literally lock my phone in a safe, but just to avoid, because everywhere you go, CNN is on everywhere, airports, you go to a burger joint, you go you go to the gym, yeah. I actually, most of the month, I didn't even go to the gym because TVs are on everywhere, or I did, and I'd wear a really low hat and have to kind of just <laughs> stare down the entire time, but we're slammed with information constantly, that's the point. Yeah, it is, and it's overwhelming, um, and it's junk food information. Most of it. So the right. same it's not it's not information information. Yeah. yeah. Well, the same way that junk food is what's responsible for our ever growing waistlines, and you know the fact that only um, you know eighty eight percent of us are in are in good metabolic health because it's, it's, it's you know this this chronic omnipresent exposure to junk food. We are getting you know information that is essentially just junk food, um, and obviously there are exceptions to the rule. People like you, what I try to do, um, put out put out good quality information for people. But um, yeah, I think social media is a source of malaise for many people, and we're seeing um, record rates of anxiety, depression. I mean, in 2018 alone, sales of books uh, related to how to improve symptoms of, of anxiety um, shot up by 25 percent at mm. one major retailer alone. So it's a big topic for people, um, and I think social media. One researcher in a study that I cite in the book put it so eloquently. The, the problem with these with our devices is that they reorient the gravitational pull. They have a, a really strong gravitational pull of our attention. So when they're around, it's like it's hard to focus on anything but, you know, the phone or the social media feed or what have you. And um, it stresses us out when we're not checking our phones. But then, unlike a drug of abuse, so like when you are um, in withdrawal for a given compound, there is a, a reduction in stress once you actually get the compound, whatever mm -hmm. that drug happens to be. But the, the ah, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah the I difference with our going. with our smartphones is that actually it increases the stress. Yeah. So we're stressed out when we're not checking our phones, and then when we do check our phones, it adds even more stress into the equation. And um, and so it's a bit of a leap to connect you know, social media and smartphone use with the chronic disease epidemic. But I mean, we know that chronic stress is not good for us. It's an indiscriminate killer. It affects digestion in many ways, in, in, in negative ways. Um, it affects our immune system negatively. Have they done many studies, I know there have been some, just about attention spans and ability to think, which sort of relates everything back to dementia and Alzheimer's and everything else. Because I notice now, like one of the, one of the real things that I notice is people never have just 
a time to sit and kind of do nothing. You never, you know, it's like, remember the old days when we were in high school? And it's like, if you're meeting your friend on the corner, you were like, all right, I'll be there at 3.30. And if yeah. 3.30 rolled around, he wasn't there. It's like, you just had to stand there. Yeah. You would stand and wait, where now we have no kind of just stand and wait time or sit in a waiting room, a waiting room. You're supposed to wait in the waiting room. But instead, you're working. We, we're all guilty of this, right? So I'm yeah. better than anyone. But like that, that we don't give our brains just like a rest, really. Maybe when we're sleeping, but often the last thing we're doing at night is this, and the first thing we're doing in the morning is this. I, I don't bring my phone in the bedroom yeah. anymore, at least most of the time. And that I found to be really uh, positive, actually. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, just as you were saying that, it, it made me realize that contemplation and introspection have become like vestigial organs. Yeah. You know, they're <laughs> like... They, they, they've become like these obsolete artifacts yeah. of time past. What? Because it's almost like if you saw someone just standing on a corner, you'd be like, he's up to no good. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. why would you just be standing on a corner? Exactly. You know? What are you, just standing there? They can't be just yeah. doing nothing. Yeah, it's a problem. I mean, I, I'm definitely, I mean, I, I use social media a lot. But even, you know, I, I could see there are times, even when my own mental health, when I, when I need to put the phone away and take a break, um, I get you know, commenters and a lot of it, I mean, often the comments that I get on my on my social media feeds are, are positive, but then you'll get some commenters that are really negative. Somebody the other day called me a literal cancer, like a literal cancer. Um, not just a metaphorical cancer. Wow. Like a literal. That's know. even a step up from Nazi. So, jeez. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it could be it could be hard to take, but I think, you know, you have to develop a thick skin and, and, and building in to our schedule reprieves from technology. Mm -hmm. For me, when I go to the gym, I'll lock my phone occasionally in the um, in the locker or I'll do cardio and it's just, you know, cardio is one of those things where you can kind of, you can listen to your music, but it becomes a lot more difficult to uh, to use your phone. Um, you want to join me for Off the Grid August? What I'm do you down. Think? Yeah. I, yeah, you're down? Yeah. I think maybe what I'll do this year is I'm going to select, like hand select like 10 or 20 public people and be like, I challenge you to join me that's and cool. like let's see what happens if a whole bunch of us check out like because i suspect everyone will have a very similar situation to me which is pretty damn good now does david do it as well or he doesn't go off the grid because okay. we still have businesses to run yeah and there's all sorts but of you, things you're but like he but he does try to limit the checking like quick in the morning make sure there's no major fires and and once at night yeah, um, smart. But, but that's the, the, the limit of it, and also we don't really talk about yeah. news or any of that kind of stuff. Because it's like when you're in something, at the level that I'm in it, I feel like you do have to have that, that reprieve. Yeah, I think it's... That's gonna, it, I'm challenging you. I'm, I mean, <laughs> right now, okay, I, 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 I'm definitely down for the challenge. Yeah. We'll see how I feel come... Yeah, we'll talk on, August, on but, July 31st. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think this is going to be one of the major, like I don't have all the, all the answers. I think this is going to be one of the major challenges of, um, of our generation, trying to figure out where that balance lies between this, um, this embracing of technology, which I think has done so much good for the world, obviously. I mean, I get to do what I do thanks to technology, right. all, so do it, you. Right, yeah. that's the thing. Um, but, but it definitely has led to challenges in the way of mental health, and um, do you think it's it's on us, meaning like us old timer? Are you a Gen Xer too, or you consider Gen yourself y. a Gen? You're a Gen Y, or oh, excuse Gen me, y, but so yeah. for but even for a, for an old timer Gen Y I'm not guy like go you, of that millennial. or yeah, or an old ass Gen X guy like me, do you kind of think it's on us to fix this because it's like the baby boomers are are slightly aging out now, 
And it's like, the, we all focused on the millennials forever, and the millennials, are, they're still super young. They're not ready, you know, they have no real power yet, although they scream a lot, but like they have no real power. And that we, the, the Gen Y, Gen X people, we're the last ones to remember the world before yeah. the phone. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there was a time, I didn't have a cell phone in college. Yeah. You, you probably had one in college, right? Uh, I had a cell phone in college. You had, a, had yeah. one, in, all right. But that shows you, it's like, we're the last ones to remember that, and there's something valuable in, in that knowledge. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the cell phone that I had in college was a flip phone, and it emitted two colors that were, you know, it, it was as bright as the dimmest bulb. Yeah. Today, our smartphones <laughs> emit millions of colors, right. and they can light up an entire room. Yeah. So this is another topic that I cover in The Genius Life, is circadian is it, disruption yeah. and circadian biology, and how disruptive that, you know, our smartphones have been to that, which is a whole other area um, you know, that we could talk about. Yeah, let, let's do that a little bit, because just the light that you talk, well, you talk about it on the phone, but also just lights that were around all the time. And yeah. how can, it throws your sleep out of whack, and Artificial you're lighting. watching TV right before bed and all mm -hmm. this stuff. Yeah, yeah, we're just, we're all living in a, in a constant state of jet lag due to artificial lighting. We're not getting enough light early in the day, which we need to anchor our body's circadian rhythm, um, which is the, the timer, basically, that dictates when we're gonna be at our most energetic, at our most coordinated, at our most focused, when we're gonna have the best digestion, the best metabolisms to, to partition and to utilize energy, and also when we're gonna get the most, when we're gonna begin to wind down for the evening and get those rejuvenating and, and restorative aspects of sleep. What's the, uh, what's the phrase when they found this with older people that like as dusk comes around, they usually, that's where you start seeing some memory stuff? Do you, do you know about this? Well, there's or this concept of afternoon diabetes um, where your metabolism, you just, you become less insulin sensitive later in the day. Mm -hmm. um, one, of the, one of the mechanisms by which that occurs is the hormone melatonin become, be, get, starts to be uh, released by the pineal gland and melatonin, it's an amazing hormone. It's involved in this process called autophagy, which is sort of like the KonMari method uh, that biology uses to clean up our cells, um, you know, to, to tidy up, get rid of old, worn-out proteins and organelles. Um, and it's involved in DNA repair, which is amazing. It's one of the reasons that's been proposed why you'll see uh, an increased risk of certain cancers in night shift workers, mm -hmm. which make up like something like 20% of the global uh, workforce. Um, so, yeah, I mean you tend to become less insulin sensitive because insulin sensitivity and, and energy metabolism, it's, it's really, our hormones are oriented in a way to, to support daylight associated activity when the light is out, when it's light out. Mm -hmm. um, and we're just, you know, evolution has anticipated that we're gonna be less active at night as diurnal creatures, and so we become less insulin sensitive at, at night. I'm not sure uh, the, the cognitive link, um, but there is certain, you know, we tend to be more alert uh, earlier in the day than we are later in the day. I mean, that makes that makes total sense. Yeah, I know there's no scientific anything to this, but one of the things that I noticed with our dog, Emma, was that around five o'clock or so when it was, you know, because we're just getting out of the winter now, um, that was, so the sun would go down earlier and it seemed like that was when she would be the most restless or the most sort of exhibiting more signs of being in pain or something. I have no idea that it has anything to do with circadian rhythm or just well, maybe it had something to do with a later dinner, I don't know, something. But it just seemed like you just start seeing odd things, you know? Yeah, I mean, our circadian clocks dictate neuro, the way that our neurotransmitters work, the way that our, that our hormones work. I mean, cortisol, which is an energizing hormone, is highest in the day and then it begins a long, gradual decline to the end of the day. I mean, so there, there is like aspects of our, of our cognitive function, of how energetic we feel, are related to our circadian rhythms. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, 
And so I talk about ways of, of anchoring that, mm -hmm. that function. One of the, um, I think, most important things that a person can do is make sure that you get bright light in through your eyes first thing in the morning or sometime before noon. Uh, there are these proteins in the eyes called melanopsin proteins discovered by uh, one of the guys on the team, Sachin Panda, brilliant researcher at the Salk Institute who I had the pleasure of interviewing for my podcast. Um, and these proteins are they're fairly insensitive, but they respond to about a thousand lux of light or higher. You can actually download an app, uh, I believe it's actually called Lux on your iPhone, to get a sense of your ambient um, light intensity. Mm -hmm. And a thousand lux, basically, which you'll, you can easily get from standing by an open window, even on an overcast day, flips a switch on those proteins, which then activates a small region in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, sort of the brain's uh, master clock which then sets off this 24-hour cascade of, of you know, uh, hormone fluctuations and the like throughout your body. Um, and so that's, I think, the most important thing that you can do. You can, food also acts like a time setter. Um, so I think it's important to be mindful of when we're eating. You know, we're ten, we, I think we're, our bodies are uh, best at utilizing and partitioning energy during the day. So, um, you know, this whole, like, intermittent fasting uh, concept that's been popularized um, lately in the, by the media, I think intermittent fasting um, can be useful, but I think that uh, the, most, the, the greatest health benefit that I've seen kind of orients the, the food consumption to earlier in the day, um, you know, eating like an hour or two after you wake up and then stopping eating two to three to four maybe hours before you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been called early time restricted feeding in the literature, I think can be super helpful. Independent of weight loss seems to improve people's blood pressure blood sugar and things like that. All right, so for everybody that wants to live the genius life and become extraordinary, and that is what it says on the title of the book. Yeah. What else should we be thinking about in these last couple of minutes? Like what else should people be trying to do? Um, well, the book is like a 360 degree lifestyle approach and you, every topic that I cover in the book could easily warrant its own volume. Um, but I try, to, I try to make things actionable, approachable, and achievable for people using only the most relevant science and making it really, um, you know, digestible. But essentially moving the body, I think, is crucially important. Um, I talk all about exercise and the value of resistance training. Um, we know that resistance training, you know, building stronger muscles, it becomes increasingly difficult to do as we get older, but uh, all the more valuable. It's one of the best ways to actually improve your metabolic health, which we know that most people are not in, in, in ideal metabolic health. Um, being mindful of your circadian rhythm, uh, as easy as it is to, to anchor your body's circadian rhythm first thing in the morning, it's one, another one of the central challenges of modern life has become to maintain that, cent that circadian rhythm. And so kind of guarding your eyes from bright light in mm -hmm. the evening, uh, you know, make, I'm a big fan of blue light blocking glasses. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you do that iPhone setting, like the night yeah, setting? The, yeah, the, uh, the uh, night shift. Shuts down some of the, the light, right? Yeah, super important. Um, there's a lot of gimmicks in the health and wellness world, the biohacking space, but amber-colored glasses, I think, are, are actually pretty useful. Um, and, yeah, I talk all about environmental toxins, just being more, just being more sort of aware of what's in the environment. And, and yeah, knowledge is power, but if you're just going to let that knowledge sit on the bookshelf in the back of your psyche and gather dust... Um, then it's not going to serve you. I think you got to act on this, on this, on that knowledge, and um, yeah, there's no time like the present to start. Good finish, my man. Yeah, thanks. All right, people, if you want to become extraordinary, go to geniuslifebook.com.